You're listening to the regular podcast from Pete the Vet's blog. This was first broadcast on East Coast FM. That celebrity vet, well, he's the closest thing we have to uh, a celebrity vet in Ireland, and that is Pete Weatherburn. You're very welcome, Pete. Good morning, Declan. I'm really uncomfortable with that term, celebrity. It just seems well, very no. silly, you know? I mean, tell me, tell me the things you're involved in. Well, I mean, I'm a vet, first of all, like... I've got a practice in Old Con Avenue in Bray, and that's always, I suppose, my my number one professional identity is that I'm a vet in practice. But I guess about um, about a decade ago, I, I um, began to do some stuff in the media, starting off actually with East Coast FM with a weekly vet spot, and then going on to do the, the, a weekly column in the Bray People, and like I say about. Ten years ago, I decided I was enjoying doing that extra stuff so much that I started to do more of it. And so I now have a column in the Evening Herald every week, a column in the UK Daily Telegraph every week, and then I do things in Woman's Way, um, Ireland's Own, and the Tuam Herald, of all things. So I have columns in all these papers, and also, kind of spinning off from the from the radio, I started to get to do television. And that actually started off with a programme called Echo Island on RTE, uh, actually about 17 years ago, with Derek Mooney and um, Darrow Breen was one of the presenters and that ran for five years and when that finished then TV3 started up so for the last 11 years every Wednesday I've done um, the vet spot in Ireland AM so kind of accidentally I've got into doing quite a lot of media stuff I suppose and I do it because I love doing it and because it's a great chance for me to get the message out about what I believe in which is looking after animals properly and you know I have wonderful opportunities to do that and I just lap them up. Without doing so much veterinary um, practice stuff, I mean, mm. do, do you feel that you can fall behind in knowledge? Well, I, I still do about four hours a day of veterinary and um, so that's plenty to keep your hand in. I have to say I don't do operations anymore, that's one thing I have stopped doing because that's quite a sort of time-consuming behind-the-scenes thing and I've, I've stopped doing as much operating as I used to and so when it comes to complicated things like putting bones together that have been broken in complicated ways or uh, or doing very um, intricate surgery like um, open chest surgery where you do things like operating on the pericardium around the heart. I used to do those things when I was in my heyday, uh, um, perhaps, you know, um, in the decade after qualifying. But more recently, I don't do so much surgery, so I'd be wary about doing those things and I would ask one of the other vets to do those. So you do have to find your strengths and um, run with them. And it seems to me, accidentally, I seem to have discovered that one of my strengths is doing this kind of stuff. And so I do more of it. And it's more fun too. I love doing it. And when you were a kid now, did you always want to be a vet? That's a weird thing. Yes. Um, I wanted to be a vet since I could communicate with the world. I just always knew. Well, in fact, that's not quite true. I think when I was four years old, I wanted to do in a pet shop. That was my my first conscious desire was own a pet shop. And then by the time I got to the age of five, I thought, well, I'm not sure about having all those animals and then selling them. And I thought, no, I know. Being a vet would be more fun. So I decided at five I was going to be a vet. And for me, what happened then was as I as I grew up, I, we kept pets ourselves at home. And the James Herriot books, um, which came out in the early 70s, which is a long, long time ago for the younger listeners, but um, when I was about sort of between the age of 8 and 14, 
his books came out and they went on to be the, the BBC television series All Creatures Great and Small and for people who were around at that time they'll know that was really high profile and he was a wonderful author who expressed his feelings about his job as a vet and his joy at being a vet really well and I read his books and thought that's what I want that just confirmed for me that's exactly what I want to do um, and so that was it. Uh, it helped me an awful lot to know when I was so young because even then, 30 years ago, getting into vet college was really difficult. This was uh, in Scotland? In Scot- yeah, I was in Scotland at that time. Where did you grow up? What part of Scotland? I grew up in uh, an area called the Kingdom of Fife, which most folk over here wouldn't have heard of at all. The Kingdom of Fife is like a county. It's like County Wicklow, really, but it's just north of Edinburgh whereas Dublin, uh, Wicklow is just south of Edinburgh. Um, Fife is just north of Edinburgh, and it includes um, towns like Kirkcaldy and um, Dunfermline and St Andrews. People might know St Andrews because of the Gulf. Yeah. It's all, all that kind of territory. So that's where I grew up and went to school. And then um, I went to, to vet college then at the Royal Dick Veterinary College. Which is that is, what it's called? It's called the Royal Dick Veterinary College because... <laughs> what are you laughing at? I think it's a funny name. Yeah, it was, he was founded by Sir William Dick, who was, who was the, one of the first vets um, back in the sort of mid-19th century. Yeah. And so it's called the Dick Vet. Anyway, we're all very proud of being Dick Vet graduates, as you can imagine. And how difficult is it to get into colleges like that? Because we hear the point system over here makes it almost impossible for people to join veterinary college. But, you know, even then, like I had to get straight A's in the equivalent of my leaving. I, uh, what was good was that I knew that from when I was kind of in the early years of secondary school and I knew I just had to focus on, on getting those um, exam results um, but even then it was difficult it's changed now so it's even more difficult now and what that means is even if you get straight A's it's not enough you also have to have a, a really good personal statement based on you know you have to spend time working with animals when you're virtually 10 years of age and you have to um, demonstrate your dedication to the cause so as well as getting straight A's you have to demonstrate that you're utterly focused in, in, in very practical ways. So I, I don't envy people trying to get into veterinary school these days. It's very, very difficult. So how many years were you in veterinary college? Well, the funny thing is it's only five years, which means that and in Scotland, when you, when you leave school, you're just 17. Um, so I, I was actually just 21 years of age when I qualified as a vet, which seems ridiculously young now. At the time, it was great. I was free in the world, finished my education, off I went. I was and delighted. what was the next step? Uh, opening up a practice or what? Well, um, I, I wasn't quite ready for that because what I, I, I had this sense that I'd grown up in Scotland and hadn't really been very far and I wanted to see the world. So the first thing I did was to go to Africa and I, I worked as a, on a graduate project in Africa studying cattle and cattle ticks. So I was working in um, a country called Swaziland, which is between South Africa and Mozambique. And I was there for eight months um, kind of just, um, I suppose, learning about how a whole different world exists. Um, the, I mean, really, um, in Swaziland, whereas some of it was quite cosmopolitan, um, I was travelling out to villages where, um, where, they, where they kept their cattle in kind of threes and fours and they wore loincloths and lived in uh, traditional huts and it really was quite an eye-opener for me. So it was only after that that I came back to Scotland and said, OK, well, I'd better get down to the serious business of establishing a career. And I worked then in what had been my dream practice, which was a, um, a James Herriot-style practice. You know, where you're going to small farms, dairy farms, beef farms, sheep farms, as well as doing um, pet work with dogs and cats in, in the afternoons and evenings. So it was that sort of mixed practice, which was the, the one which James Pratt had James Herriot had written about this kind of idea that you can be um, every man 
you know, a vet for every man. Everybody will come to you with every kind of sick animal. And I ran with that for four or five years, and I was offered a partnership there, and that could have been the end of my story. But it wasn't somehow. And it's funny, isn't it, that you... Um, I often I have a sense you see that we all we're all we all come to this earth with 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 certain skills and attributes and what you might call your calling and that our mission in life is to find our calling and when you found your calling you're really happy in your skin you feel that you're in the groove and you're just doing what you're meant to be doing and you're loving it and after after four or five years doing this mixed practice I found I found myself on a hillside once where I, my job was to dehorn and castrate um, 50 10 month old bullocks in the day and it was uh, I was thinking to myself why am I doing this what is the benefit um, this is something which is not particularly fun it's like an ordeal to get through but what is the point of it all and then I found myself with a shed full of coughing calves to be treated and I knew that what they needed was quite an expensive antibiotic and I spoke to the farmer and he said well look it's just not worth it's just not worth that much to me so we'll just leave them I found myself finding it difficult to work in farm practice because I found that it was more about the economics of meat production and milk production than about the animal and the relationship of the animal with the owner. And I'm not, I mean, the, the farmers were very good to their animals and the animals had reasonable quality of lives. But the bottom line was it's pure economics. And I actually found that quite difficult to work with on a day-to-day -day basis. I found that I, I felt that I wasn't here on this earth to produce meat and milk. That wasn't what it was about for me. It was about something else. So that's, I kind of threw in the towel at that stage and, and spent a year and a half scratching my head. <laughs> Did you go travelling again? Yeah, myself, my wife Joyce, we headed Hold on, off. you skipped that bit too. Oh where, yeah. Where, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's kind of an where important... Where does she appear? <laughs> yeah, Joyce, Joyce and myself met when we were, we were at college together in Edinburgh. And she, she's an Irish girl, I was a Scottish guy, and uh, we just got on really well together and um, became best friends. And kind of things progressed from there. And so, uh, um, so we got married then, and once we were married we thought, right, what do we want to do together? And I, I was a bit little bit not sure about where my veterinary career was going so we both said we'd love to see the world more than just Africa let's go and really see the rest of the world so off we headed with backpacks on our on our backs um, and sleeping bags and started off in India went on to Nepal and I guess the usual thing went to China then Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, ended up working in Australia for a while, which I loved because you had all these weird animals like people coming in with shopping bags with kangaroos in them. Can you imagine that? That's a hilarious thing that happens in Australia. People find a dead kangaroo beside the road and they realize if that's a mummy kangaroo, she's got a, a live, she could have a live joey in her pouch. And so they, they, they stop when they see a dead kangaroo, they fish around in a pouch, and if they're lucky, like pulling out a rabbit out of a hat, they pull out a baby kangaroo. And they then take those baby kangaroos home and they rear them. And then they bring them into the vet to be checked. And it's just, as a vet, to come across those things, it's just weird because you haven't, didn't really get much of an education looking after kangaroos when I was in Edinburgh. I learned a lot when I was in Australia. Right, but the time came to go home, and did you go home to Scotland, or did, did you make a decision with Joyce saying, well, you should come to Ireland? You know, Joyce never said that, not once. That's this sort of stereotype that I'm here because my wife was Irish and she wanted to come home. She, had, she put absolutely no pressure on me to come to Ireland at all. What happened was, we got back from our travels, and I, I took out the vet record, which is where all the jobs are advertised, and I just browsed through it looking for interesting jobs, still not having a clue what I wanted to do 
other than that, I didn't want to just do the standard thing. And looking through all the adverts for, you know, being a, a vet in Manchester or Birmingham or Glasgow, and I thought, none of these really appeal. And then this thing came up, um, a dermatology resident at Dublin Vet School. And I thought, that's a fascinating idea. It's completely off the wall. Um, but I'd be really interested in having, having a shot at that. So I came, for a, I came across for an interview when we were visiting Joyce's parents, I said, I'll just go into Vet College and have an interview with this, for this position. What I didn't realise at the time was that the position had actually been kind of designed for somebody they already had their eye on, so I didn't really have a hope of getting it, because I wasn't really a dermatologist, you know, I was more of a general vet. But while I was there, they said, well, we're not sure if that job's for you, but we really need a locum to help us out, because somebody's fallen sick and we need a vet who can just teach basic surgery to students. So I thought, that's a great idea, I'd love doing that. So I stood in as a locum with them then for a, for a couple of months. And living in Dublin and Ireland, I found that I really liked this country a lot. It just gave me stuff that I didn't get when I was back in Scotland. I found that it, I just, it gelled, Ireland gelled with me. So when the job came up in Bray, just shortly after, by chance, um, somebody I met knew somebody, as is the way that Ireland works. Um, and because they knew somebody, I had sort of the first interview for the job. And I just said, yeah, Bray looks like a lovely little town. Um, I, I'd love to live there. Joyce is a bit less certain because she had the traditional view of Bray, as some people, you know, still do. They think Bray, the end of the dark, weekends hordes of Dubliners going out there, a bit rough, you know, which is a load of nonsense, as you discover when you live here. Um, and as we soon discovered um, when we came to live here, and we've been here now 22 years. Wow. 22 years, and love it, just love it. It's a great place to live. It's got the best of everything here, from culture to countryside to city, just... Dublin City, just round the corner. Great place to live. Well, you probably recognise his voice as Pete Weatherburn, our vet. We're hearing about his uh, life uh, and how he got to being here. 22 years in Bray. Mm. And you're in the community, not only through your veterinary work, but uh, I know you're active uh, in your church. Uh, I know that people see you along the road with all your uh, athletic uh, endeavours, uh, running well, and bicycles and triathlons and... Uh, well, Declan, the whole thing is that you have to try and you have to try and live a balanced life and that's my aim is to live a balanced life and, and certainly probably the number one bit of my balanced life is my family like my wife Joyce and the two children two girls they are the centre that's basically my primary mission is to look after them that's what it's all about um, and it, um, so that's kind of number one thing then there's work and you have to be enthusiastic about your work if it becomes a chore then you have to move on or you get burnt out and I discovered that um, I was working too hard for a while sort of 12 hour days for the first decade and I found that that was too much and it was after that then I started to work a bit less in the clinic and do more of the sort of media stuff And so loving your work is the second thing so there's family there's work and, and then there's spirituality and I, I really believe very much that this sort of modern secular view of the world that's the, the current trendy view if you like I think that it doesn't have all the answers certainly it doesn't have all the answers for me and um, Is secularism modern? I don't I, I think it's become a more current more more pervasive view um, even when I came to Ireland 22 years ago the church for all of its faults had a much stronger um, 
everybody believed, everybody was seen, they saw themselves as believers, if you like, or at least as regular churchgoers. Okay, they might still believe, but don't mm. believe in the institution. No, uh, may, perhaps so, but I think there's a trend, a, a trend for secularism just across the board, whereby, you know, it's not really acceptable to... You know, if you talk about faith, people start saying, so you believe in the great sky fairy, do you? You know, and they, they think... Are uh, people as dis disparaging as that? Often, especially in the media. I do find that, I do find that. Do you not think that um, people have a view uh, as they get more mature, maybe more educated or, or more thoughtful, that they see a separation of church and state? So if the church, and that's every church or faith, um, used to have the dominant role, anything that's taken away from them can uh, be perceived as a, by a church person as, oh, secularism is coming in. Whereas it's really just rebalancing between what is Caesar's and, and, and what is God's. I, I think there is some of that going on, and there's no harm in that. But I think as part of that, what seems to happen is that people... Oh, I, I, people tend to be very disparaging about about faith, and people say you're a scientist. How can you have a, a religious faith when there's absolutely no proof? That kind of attitude. Um, is that not a legitimate question? I think it's. I, Do you I, think it's it's delivered with a sneer? Is that what you're saying? I think it is delivered in a cynical way, in a in a way of saying you're obviously a complete idiot. That's the impression that I get. Um, and they sort of s suggest that faith is a crutch, and that you should be strong enough not to need faith. Just accept the bold facts that you're here by complete chance um, and, you know, you... You're, you're characterising something now. That, that's, a, <laughs> that's a soapbox statement now. But that's what I hear people saying to me. But for me, you know, that sort of attitude doesn't have all the answers. It, my, my mind doesn't sit easy with that. Um, one of my favourite sayings, I think, is my, my wife's grandfather who used to stand by the bay windows of his bay windows of his house looking out at the countryside and saying to the room it's all a great mystery and i believe that it is a great mystery and part of life's mission for us all is to find the best possible answer to that mystery and i accept that for some people that's pure secularism for them that's the answer to the mystery i don't need any more answer than that but for me that's not enough i have to have um some understanding or some faith in something greater than just the facts and is that, here today. is that because your personality needs something? Is it the opium of the people? Is it is it you know? Do you think it's part of our personalities well, as humans to actually hope that there is something that's bigger? So well, and we need it. I think it's quite hard to know the answer to that. For me, it just makes life complete. That's all I can say is I'm more at ease with myself having a faith. It feels like the truth to me. It answers questions on on dark nights and on difficult times and at good times. So, do you do you have a view of the world that's more about you, and you want to regulate it according to your beliefs, or you know, is it more about uh, whereas the other side of it, the people who maybe are non-believers, see it more of well, you know, it's more tolerance and, uh, and inclusiveness. I would hope I'd be tolerant and inclusive. I wouldn't be saying what anybody else should believe. All I know is what works for me and what feels like the truth for me. I think that's as much as each of us can do. I don't think we can say, I get uncomfortable. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm Christian. I'm, I go to the Presbyterian Church in Greystones and that's my faith. Um, and I know Christians who would want to go out there and convert everybody else to their faith, and I can I know what they're getting at, but I don't. Think, but you can't do that because it doesn't work for everybody. We each should have a mission to find out what works for us. I believe that 
for me, there's a bit of my brain that needs to be filled by some spiritual satisfaction. And for me, Christianity is the thing that works for me. But I don't know that is the same for everybody. I, I wouldn't like to say that that it, that it is. People come from different backgrounds and they, everybody finds their own way to God, whatever their God is. Everybody finds their own way. Right. Well, Pete, you're going to stay with us for another while anyway in County Wicklow. I, yeah, I am. And I want to mention triathlons briefly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> another bit of the jigsaw of a balanced life is exercise. Yeah. And, and I tried for many years to exercise regularly. I could not do it. Then I took up triathlons and I took on a triathlon coach Eamon Tilly, who I think you met here the other week. From Enniskerry. From, from, he's, yeah, he's from like Bray. That, he? He's from Bray, Team Tilly. And he's my coach. And he, he, he calls me every week and says, Pete, did you do your exercise? And I found that I need to somebody cracking whip over me like Eamon does. And he does it very nicely. And um, he really makes sure that I exercise. And if I exercise, I stay healthy and I stay happy. That's the, the general gist of it, Declan. Very good. Well, Pete, um, I have to say it's not just a, a pleasure for you um, to have you here in the studio on the programme, but uh, I've enjoyed knowing you for all those years anyway since I came here. We have fun Coast. together, don't we, every, <laughs> every week, Declan? <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, Pete, uh, hopefully you'll be with us next week. I know there's filming and all that sort of stuff with uh, TV3, but... Um, yeah, Animal A&E, we just finished filming a new series that will be coming out later on in the year. So, so maybe some animal questions next week. Excellent. Look Thanks for dropping in. Oh, you've got a new premises, don't you? I, I was oh, yeah. passing by there and I saw... Hey, what's going on? This is our, one of our lifetime career dreams is to, is to build a purpose-built veterinary hospital. And we, we've been planning it for the last 15 years. And finally this spring we've managed to put it into place. And the building is shot up. It's, it's now finished on the outside and we're kitting out the inside. And certainly by the middle of the summer we'll be welcoming people into a state-of-the-art veterinary hospital. An old kind of, yeah. It's going gonna, gonna to be really exciting and professionally extremely satisfying. I'm really looking forward to it. Peter Weatherburn, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Good morning to you.